Welcome to the Leadership Disrupted Podcast. This is Dan Rust. In today's episode, we're going to look back at the year 2022 and focus on events that provided insights or just interesting takes on leadership and what it means to be a great leader or a horrible leader from the ground floor front lines of business to the C-suite to leadership in government and world affairs, and even leadership as a parent, a life partner, a friend, or a colleague. There were plenty of interesting and unexpected things that happened this past year to provide us with lessons and observations if you're paying attention and asking the right questions. So let's start by going all the way back to January of 2022. Twitter announced in January that they had permanently suspended U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene for allegedly violating the company's policies about COVID-19 misinformation. Remember, at that time, the COVID-19 pandemic was still in full force throughout the world. Now, I'm not going to debate whether Twitter's decision was wise or not, or even whether Representative Taylor Greene was in fact spreading COVID-19 misinformation. I only mention the event of her Twitter account permanent suspension in January because it prompts a thought regarding one of the overarching leadership themes this year the broadly diminishing credibility, confidence, and trust in our leaders in virtually every area, governmental leadership, corporate, nonprofit, and even religious leadership. But if you, as an everyday leader in the world of work, are wondering why some of the people who report to you seem more cynical and challenging and questioning and willing to push back, it may not be you And it may not be them, it may be that their general perspective on all leaders has been impacted by a broad range of events and circumstances. And I'll be touching on more of these events that occurred in 2022 as we move forward. I should also note that later in the year, Representative Taylor Greene's Twitter account suspension was lifted sometime after Elon Musk took over. More about that later as well. Also in January, Two of the defendants convicted in the murder of Ahmad Arbery were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, while a third was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. Two years earlier, in February of 2020, Arbery, then 25, was jogging through Brunswick, Georgia, when the three men chased him down in a pickup truck because, to them, he didn't look like he belonged in their neighborhood, and a black man running seemed outright suspicious. The men attempted to physically stop him, and after a brief scuffle, Travis McMichael shot Arbery three times at close range, and one of the other men caught the entire incident on his cell phone camera. I must have watched that video at least a dozen times, thinking, this was 2020, and white men are still chasing down a black man because he just seemed wrong, and pulling a weapon on him and killing him? To many white people like myself, this seems crazy, impossible, never in a million years. But there it was on camera. And so, as a leader in the working world, if you want to develop greater empathy and understanding for the sensitivities of your colleagues of color, don't look away uncomfortably from a moment like this. Force yourself to really see it, and maybe to some degree see it through the eyes of those for whom an incident like this isn't a crazy, it-could-never-happen-to-me thing. But in fact, they must think to themselves, under a certain set of circumstances, it could happen to me. As a leader, empathy comes from putting yourself in the shoes of others, even if those shoes are deeply uncomfortable. Now, in completely unrelated news, also in January, 
the United States Mint announced that they started shipping the first coins of the American Women Quarters Program. American poet Maya Angelou was the first African-American woman to be featured on a U.S. quarter, and there were protests. Ugly comments on social media. And sure, it was easy to dismiss the trolls, not pay them any attention, but again, as a leader of a diverse group of colleagues, I found myself asking, what must it be like for some of them to see how easily such ugliness rears up its head, even over something so mundane, harmless? Why does it seem that lifting anyone or any group up has to be perceived by some as pushing others down? Woke has become an insult in some quarters. And so I mention this as a leader because at our best, we are creating safe spaces of inclusion for everyone, and we shouldn't pretend that the ugliness doesn't still exist. In late January, you may remember that the Canada Freedom Convoy arrived at Parliament Hill in Ottawa, Ontario, to protest vaccine mandates and other public health restrictions imposed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Right or wrong, millions of Canadians had concerns about negative health effects of the COVID vaccines, and both government and health services leaders seemed unable to convince, persuade, educate these people to see things differently. Again, these people, right or wrong, felt that their government was trying to force them to comply or lose their livelihoods. So the sounds of hundreds of truck horns filled the cold air in downtown Ottawa as thousands of truckers and their supporters converged on the area around Parliament Hill, causing total gridlock in the city's core. The trucker protest went on for more than three weeks. Ottawa declared a state of emergency in the capital, and the government of Canada eventually quashed the protest by invoking the Emergencies Act, freezing the financial accounts of those suspected to be involved in the blockades, making over 100 arrests, and physically clearing protesters off of Parliament Hill. The heavy hand of government quashed the protest, but at the same time, it only intensified the suspicions of some, more than just a handful of people, that their government was not being completely straight with them. And I remind you of this protest because the same dynamics were reflected in many other countries around the globe. Citizens are becoming less trustful of their leaders, more willing to fight their government, either overtly through public protests or covertly underground, leveraging the internet to connect with like-minded individuals. This dynamic of distrust, along with the ability to easily connect with others who are similarly distrustful, this is requiring leaders to be better communicators, to have more empathy for other viewpoints, and a willingness to engage in dialogue. But many leaders, especially government leaders, who are used to command and control and are, in fact, very comfortable with command and control, they are struggling to evolve toward a more inclusive leadership style. In early February, CNN President Jeff Zucker resigned for failing to disclose that he was in a relationship with the network's executive vice president. The relationship was discovered during a misconduct investigation into the network's former anchor, Chris Cuomo. While in Australia, liberal MP Alan Tudge resigned after an affair with a staffer was revealed. So let me ask you, haven't we all spent decades going through sexual harassment training at least once a year and having it drilled into our heads that A, leaders don't get into romantic or sexual relationships with their subordinates, and B, if you as a leader happen to accidentally fall in love with a subordinate, you disclose it to HR and take action to ensure a positive and safe work environment for everyone. For decades, we've been hearing this. 
So what message does it send when the most powerful leaders seem to feel that they are not bound by the same rules as the rest of us? Well, at least one of the things that has changed recently, perhaps with the advent of the Me Too movement, is that when these situations come to light, there is a price to be paid by the senior leaders at fault. But even with that, I think we are likely to see more stories like this come to light in 2023. More senior leaders will take a fall, and to be honest, many won't. But the important point for all of us as leaders is to understand that these boundaries are important. They're not to be crossed. And our organizations look to us for reinforcement that we aren't just saying the words. We are in fact committed to a workplace free of sexual harassment, misconduct, and pressure. It does feel a little weird to be saying this because it seems and feels so obvious. This is 2023. However, if you ask, many women will tell you that the pressures still exist in many workplaces, so we're not going to shut up about it. On February 24th of last year, Russia fired missiles into Ukraine, then invaded the country, starting a war that would last longer than almost anyone expected and continues to this day with an uncertain ultimate outcome. In terms of leadership, one of my favorite questions is, what does great leadership look like? And in this situation, the Russian invasion of Ukraine presents us with an interesting answer because before the war, Putin was viewed broadly as a clever, cynical, brutal, but effective leader in full control of his Kremlin apparatchiks, while Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, an entertainer-turned-politician, had extremely low approval ratings and was viewed by most people in Ukraine as either ineffective at combating pervasive political corruption or participating in the corruption or some combination of both. So during a time of relative peace and stability, Zelensky was at best a mediocre leader. But in the face of the Russian invasion, his stewardship of the country, his communication skills, his steadfast determination and stirring calls to defend Ukraine impressed even those who were previously skeptical about his leadership. While perceptions of Putin, both internally within Russia and especially externally in the rest of the world, shifted in the opposite direction. Zelensky did not become a different person, and neither did Putin, but the dramatic change in circumstances brought the need for a shift in leadership priorities, strategies, and focus. Zelensky rose to the moment, and Putin was diminished by it. The actor-turned-president turned out to be the exact leader that Ukraine and the world yearned for at this moment. And I think there's a lesson for all of us. Our situations within our own organizations are likely less dramatic, but we should be asking ourselves, what kind of leader does this group, this team, this organization, what kind of leader do they need now? And can I rise to the moment and be the leader they need? Something else happened as a reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Thousands of companies paused their business operations in Russia or pulled their businesses out of Russia altogether. This reaction was pretty much unprecedented in the history of business, not at all something that Putin had anticipated, and another sign that businesses are becoming much more active in social and geopolitical affairs, and they don't really have much of a choice. Because of our globally interconnected communication infrastructure, we can all see in real time whether the profound and compelling values and purpose statements that are on company walls are really there to guide their actions, or are they just decoration? 
When the leaders of global companies were confronted with the fact that we have a land war in Europe going on, that is, a war of choice, a war of aggression, they could not avoid having to ask and answer the question, what do we do about it? We can't pretend to not know. We can't pretend to not see the aggressive grab for land. And so, can we continue to operate our businesses and support the Russian economy? And many came to the conclusion that they could not because they understood that pretending to do business as usual, if they did not react to this aggression, basically, then they would just be giving Russia the impression that they can do whatever they want. And the next aggression, maybe two years from now, might be the Baltic states, might be Poland. So many business leaders felt that they had to do what they could do now. Many started by suspending operations in Russia, and then weeks or months later, when it became clear that this was not a short-term thing, many of them decided to leave Russia altogether. They sold the assets they had in Russia, taking major losses, of course. But for many businesses, they realized that they simply could not condone, even passively, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And these decisions were not always obvious or easy for any business leader. On one side, you think about putting economic pressure on the system in order to act in favor of peace and humanitarian perspectives. On the other hand, doing so, of course, leads to a lot of challenges for the Russian population, for ordinary people, for co-workers. So the decisions were not easy or obvious, which makes it all the more impressive that so many businesses opted out of Russia. There really hasn't been anything like it in modern history. Some people point to the business boycott of South Africa during the apartheid era, but that played out over a span of 15 years. This happened in less than 15 weeks. These decisions made by global business leaders are a strong indicator that today, businesses are being driven by more than just the raw grab for profits. That the term socially responsible capitalism is more than just a buzz phrase. I know it's a trigger phrase for some of you, and we'll discuss that a little more very shortly. Also in February, a planned $66 billion merger between British semiconductor company ARM and American hardware company NVIDIA was canceled after facing regulatory pressures from the United States, the European Union, the United Kingdom, and China. If the deal had been successful, it would have been the largest merger in the history of the semiconductor industry and would have presented some serious challenges for competitors like Intel. In totally unrelated news, a few weeks later, Intel pledged $33 billion in investments in European Union factories and research facilities, including $17 billion for building a chip-making plant in Magdeburg, Germany, and $12 billion for upgrading their Irish plant. Intel promised $80 billion over the next decade for the EU. And I'm sure that this had nothing to do with the EU canceling a merger of two of Intel's rivals just a few weeks earlier. Now, how does this relate to leadership in business and government? Well, I think to be successful at this level, you have to understand that it's a rough game with tough players who have sharp elbows. And while there are rules, there's almost always a game under the game. As a leader of humans, I think it helps to be at peace with the reality that people are flawed, imperfect, that some are built to be cooperative and have an internal drive to help others. And some people are innately competitive with an internal drive to take advantage and gain power over others. And a lot of us are an ever-shifting mix of these two opposing dynamics. People are not easy, and you'll be a better leader if you stop expecting them to be. Now, on to our year in review. In early 2022, very few business leaders were concerned about a potential recession. 
There was so much optimism at the end of the previous year, and then the Russian invasion of Ukraine had caused a spike in oil prices, which exacerbated all of the post-pandemic concerns about supply chain disruption and price increases. It really seemed that inflation was more of a threat than recession. In response, the Fed started tightening. And here's a little economic lesson for all of us. In trying to solve one problem that they did see, they led us down the road to at least the expectation of a recession, although we didn't really see it in the U.S. during the course of the year. But recession now appears to be on the not-too-distant horizon. The thing that's very interesting is that for most of the year, even with the Fed tightening, most business leaders and financial gurus weren't worried about a potential recession as much as I expected them to be. They were seeing robustness and strength in other parts of the economy and some real economic flexibility. And so nobody came off as particularly gloomy about the potential for a downturn. What you see in conversations with business leaders consistently is a recognition that we're operating in an unprecedented environment where so many of the traditional indicators and so many of the traditional models are breaking down. Whether you look at the interest rate environment, the historically high levels of inflation, the forecasts for some level of economic contraction set against what continues to be a very strong labor market, reasonably strong consumer balance sheets, financial markets that are holding up reasonably well. And with all that said, you still see business leaders finding ways to navigate that environment successfully for their own organizations and probably with a confidence from having navigated all of these curveballs over the past two or three COVID years relatively successfully. So that even if there are some challenges, there's a belief that businesses will be able to continue to generate positive results for their full range of stakeholders. In general, businesses seem to be more resilient today than two or three years ago. Though clearly, none of us knows exactly what the business cycle will do. In 2023, certain industries will probably be affected more than others. There is a possibility of some level of slower growth or contraction, and we shouldn't minimize any of those things. Business leaders need to take the responsible steps to be prepared and to be resilient. The issue, though, is not over-vectoring in the short term because there are so many positive signals in terms of the medium to long-term outlook that overwhelmingly what I hear from business leaders is that they want to make sure they're investing through the cycle. What I'm finding is companies are saying, we can't cut back on our technology investments and we can't cut back on our ESG commitments because all of those things are part of a strategy to retool our company to be ready for the world that we see ahead. Obviously, that's easier said than done. If your revenues go down and you have less money to spend, you got to tighten budgets. But nobody wants to stop the transformation because they believe it's critical to winning the future. And that's the key prioritization and making certain that those things that are long-term investments don't suffer through an over-indexing on trying to drive short-term results. If you look at this through a broad societal lens, we're undergoing a massive transformation of how we live and work, fueled by the proliferation of so many exciting emerging technologies, and nobody wants to be the one to have pulled back investment and missed out because their competitors certainly aren't. In previous episodes, I've talked about the social responsibilities of business in a capitalist democracy. And when the economy is growing robustly, recovering from a COVID-induced downturn, it is relatively easy to talk a good game and invest in a good game. 
But now, with an economy where things are getting worse and money is going to be harder to come by, I've wondered if this will mean that business leaders will have to put their social impact and environmental impact goals on a back burner, which we've seen happen in the past when the economy is in a tough spot. But most of the business leaders I've talked to about this say that these things have become so ingrained in their strategy and the way they think about their purpose as a company that they have every intention of continuing to go on. Now, maybe I'm just talking to a self-selected group of leaders, and unfortunately, this has become a polarized topic. Maybe not surprising because we live in a society where virtually everything becomes polarized. But if you take the emotion out of it, I actually don't think there's that much of a gap between those who buy into stakeholder capitalism and those who want to sort of fall back on shareholder primacy and talk about the imperative of driving returns. If you take a long-term lens, the reality is that those two points of view actually converge. In an environment where trust is low, where there are questions out there about whether a sort of Ayn Randian capitalist free market economy is working for everyone, when employees and customers expect, really demand, that businesses demonstrate a level of inclusive growth, a level of responsibility in order to earn the license to continue on with their business models, in an environment like this, that imperative of doing right by society and communities will feed into being able to generate returns for shareholders. And so I just don't see there being as big a gap between the interests of stakeholders and shareholders as some would like to make it out to be. In 2023, I see business leaders continuing to figure out how to navigate the interests of all their constituencies. In February of 2022, in a letter published by the Vatican, ex-Pope Benedict XVI expressed, and I quote, my profound shame, my deep sorrow, and my heartfelt request for forgiveness, unquote, in response to an inquiry into his handling of child sex abuse cases when he was Archbishop of Munich and Freising between 1977 and 1982. Later in April, Pope Francis apologized for the conduct of some members of the Roman Catholic Church in Canada's residential school system, followed by a week of talks with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis delegations. The abuses in question spanned many decades and thousands of First Nations children, and church authorities had a long history of covering up the abuses. I make note of this because it is one more tangible example of the institutions of societal leadership beginning to crumble when you cannot trust the Pope to put the interests of children before the interests of his own priests and nuns. Who can you trust? And that was one of the leadership themes of 2022. Who can you trust? Can you think of any leader who retains the trust of, let's say, more than 50% of the population? There was a time when we had at least a few key figures we all trusted. Now, whether in hindsight that trust was wise or not, that's another matter. But my point is that leadership in general is at a crisis point for our society, our world. Simply put, we do not have leaders who are broadly trusted by the majority of all of us, and this does impact your role as a day-to-day -day business leader. It's not your fault that politicians lie, that the future Pope covered up child abuse cases, that Elizabeth Holmes turned out to be a liar and a con woman. It's not your fault that so many well-known leaders turned out to be horrible people in 2022, but it does impact the way your people see you. And it means that you have to work harder to earn their trust and to keep it. In 2022, the wreck of Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance, which sank in the Antarctic in 1915, was located beneath the icy Weddell Sea. 
Shackleton was one of the principal figures of the period known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. In recent years, Shackleton has been rediscovered and has become a role model for leadership in extreme circumstances. But much like Zelensky in Ukraine, Shackleton was a great leader under certain extreme circumstances and a less than effective leader during more mundane times. Away from his expeditions, Shackleton's life was generally restless and unfulfilled. He launched business ventures that failed, and he died heavily in debt. Upon his death, he was lauded in the press, but was thereafter largely forgotten. And I share this story because, well, the endurance was rediscovered in 2022, and Shackleton remains a useful example of leadership effectiveness and ineffectiveness. Somewhat similar to the situation with Zelensky in Ukraine, Shackleton was highly effective as a leader in some environments and completely ineffective in others. As business leaders, when our market evolves, when our people evolve, when the business model changes, the question to ask is, what kind of leader do we need now? And can you adapt to be the leader that's needed now? When you are hiring leaders for your organization, maybe it's time to ask these questions to ensure that you're not hiring someone who would have been a great fit for your business 10 years ago, but not so much today. Throughout 2022, I had conversations every week with business leaders, and the consistent big, big topic of discussion was people. What was particularly interesting to me is that even as we got toward the end of the year and the majority of senior leaders were predicting a mild to moderate recession in 2023, when I asked them about the biggest challenge they face, they didn't talk about the recession. They talked about talent, the battle for talent, the war for talent, the demands that talented people were making, both in terms of pay and working, working from home, working in a psychologically safe environment, working on projects that make a difference, people. This really was the leadership topic of 2022. If we do move into a recessionary business environment in 2023, it's an open question whether it will still be a talent market where employees hold all the cards, that they're able to dictate terms the way they could when the economy was a bit more optimistic and sunny, because we're all still figuring out the answers to some really important questions about where people work and how people come together and what hybrid looks like. I'm sure the power that talent is feeling right now will ease up some as the unemployment rate rises. Right now, we're still at about 3.7%. A higher unemployment rate is going to cause some of that to back off. But the fundamental fact, recession or not, is that talent has continued to become more important to the value of a business. If you go back 50 years ago, the key thing was, do you have the factories? Do you have the inventory? Do you have the oil in the ground? It was all about the physical stuff. And today, value is created by people more than stuff. And this has really changed the equation for business. Holding on to talent and finding interesting and authentic ways to do that has been top of mind for most of the CEOs and other business leaders I've been speaking with. Look at the typical workforce today. Half of them are millennials. All of them have high expectations for the values of the company they work for expectations for the engagement of their leaders. They want to work for a place where they think the company and their leadership share their values. They want colleagues and especially leaders who are more empathetic, who engage with them in a very different way, communicate in a different way. I view leadership empathy as a hard skill. It's not soft. This isn't about being nice. This gives you competitive edge. Empathy for your workforce will enable you to attract and retain an extraordinarily diverse group of people in your organization to become an employer of choice. 
We are close to the era of the business leader who feels your pain. And I don't mean that as an empathy joke. I don't at all. I mean it as someone who has worked with leaders who really are taking the time to understand on a granular level what it means to employees to work for their company, wherever they are, and then build policies and procedures and systems and values around it. And this really is changing the nature of leadership. Look, I've been talking and listening and writing about this intersection between business and society and leadership for decades, and it's really only in the past three or four years that I've heard CEOs and other senior leaders seriously use that word, empathy. And by the way, it's not just women. Men are using it too, and the point is that to lead in this environment in which so many stakeholders can influence your success, you really have to pay attention to your employees. You have to listen to their hopes, their dreams, their desires, because your job as a leader is less about telling people what to do today than it was in the past, and more about motivating them, inspiring them, and you have to understand their hopes and dreams in order to do that. And this is all the more important when you have employees who come from traditionally disadvantaged communities, not just race, gender, and sexuality, but the entire range of human diversity. And the learning curve has been steep on this for any leader who comes from a majority culture demographic. However you define that when it comes to inclusion and understanding the hopes and dreams and the unique pathways to the workforce that people of color or anybody who's underrepresented or disadvantaged in the workforce has had. And I do worry that when recession comes or when trade-offs happen, that the progress and initiatives and efforts are going to go by the wayside. They didn't during the pandemic. They didn't. But I do worry about that. And I think we're really at a pivot point for business and business leadership to create a new way forward into the 21st century. A lot of 20th century management was about teaching people to be better machines, essentially. They were a cog in the great production factory. And scientific management was all about how you make them work together better as cogs in the machine. But the 21st century is going to be very different. The machines are kind of taking care of themselves. Amazing technological developments. And so people are going to have to be better people. And that's a lot of what I'm hearing in my leader conversations. And all of that sounds so compelling, doesn't it? So inspiring. But I also can't forget that in March of 2022, P&O Ferries in the UK informed all 800 of their staff that there was to be a mandatory Zoom call later in the day. It turned out to be a pre-recorded call and all 800 were informed that they had been fired, sacked, canned. They were going to be replaced with cheaper agency workers. The day-to-day management of the business had been outsourced. All of the staff were told that this was to be their final day of employment. But some refused to leave their ships in protest and had to be physically removed. P&O said that it was a tough decision, but it wouldn't be a viable business without the changes. Essentially, their hands were tied. They hated to be so cold-hearted about it, but they really didn't have a choice. Blah, 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 blah. And what they were doing was technically legal. But the government called the workers' treatment wholly unacceptable. After the cheaper agency workers were deployed, several P&O ferries failed their safety checks, and eventually the Department for Transport in the UK gave them a deadline of March 31st to rehire all the fired staff. P&O ferries was forced into a complete about-face, and somehow they did manage to have a viable business, although a slightly less profitable one. But the damage done to worker relations and public perception was huge. There are probably many, many leadership lessons in all of this, but the biggest one 
focusing on shareholder profits to the exclusion of other stakeholders is rarely a strong long-term business decision. On May 2nd of last year, a draft opinion leaked to Politico indicated that the U.S. Supreme Court was set to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The draft opinion was a complete repudiation of the 1973 decision which guaranteed federal constitutional protections of abortion rights in the United States. This was particularly shocking, and some even doubted that the leaked draft could be true, because every sitting justice during their Senate confirmation hearings had affirmed that Roe v. Wade was, in their own words, settled law. And every justice had professed adherence to the legal doctrine of stare decisis, meaning respect for legal precedent. To overturn Roe v. Wade would seem to fly in the face of those assurances that every Supreme Court justice had made during their confirmation hearings. Now, for the purpose of this podcast, I'm not arguing the legality or morality of abortion here. I'm just observing that these conservative justices, when they needed the votes for Senate confirmation, gave these assurances. And then, on June 24th, the United States Supreme Court made it official, overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, ending the protection of the right to abortion on the federal level, and returning regulation to the states. 22 states immediately enacted trigger laws or reinstituted existing laws banning abortion. Now, there was a time when the justices of the Supreme Court were broadly respected in the United States of America, revered even. They were viewed as being above politics and certainly above lying. But once again, the respect for a previously revered institution is crumbling. Even if you fully agree with the decision, I hope that you can see how the manner in which the decision was achieved has served to erode confidence in our leadership. If the Supreme Court justices are politicking and spinning and pulling the levers of power when they have the power, what does that really say to the rest of us? Back to the question I asked earlier. Are there any leaders left who we can all respect? In July of 2022, U.S. President Joe Biden met with Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Jeddah. Despite previously vowing to make him a pariah because of his obvious role in the murder of dissident journalist Adnan Khashoggi. Khashoggi, a columnist for the Washington Post who wrote critically of the crown prince and his policies, was murdered by a team of Saudi agents in the kingdom's consulate in Istanbul in October of 2018. His dismembered body has never been recovered. The killing occurred in October of 2018 during the Trump administration, and Biden railed against what he called Trump's soft response and collusion with the Saudi regime. But when Biden became president, after saying he had raised the issue with Mohammed bin Salman, they quickly and quietly got back to business as usual. And so again, I ask, if you wonder why so many of your employees have a cynical and untrusting view toward leaders in general, if so many of your employees aren't buying your high-minded proclamations of your organization mission, vision, and passion for making the world a better place, if you're wondering where that cynicism is coming from, for some of them, at least, it may be because they're paying attention to what's happening in the real world. Maybe the leaders of our governments and global institutions are less effective and less inspiring than previous generations of leaders, or maybe the rise of social media and investigative journalism and WikiLeaks and hacker groups like Anonymous has just meant that we now see almost daily the failings of leaders that remained hidden from the masses in previous generations. But whatever the root causes, 
don't expect these employees to become less cynical anytime soon. You will have to do more to earn their trust. But remember, at the same time, they do want to work for an organization and for leaders that they can trust. It's just harder than ever for them to get there. And speaking of fading confidence in longstanding institutions, September 8th of 2022, brought the death of Elizabeth II, Queen of the United Kingdom and the other Commonwealth realms, and the longest reigning British monarch. Around the same time, Prince Andrew, Duke of York, was stripped of virtually all of his royal perks and patronages and military titles and honors as part of the fallout from his ongoing civil sexual assault trial. The royal family became embroiled in a conflict with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex when Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle opted to transition out of the role of full-time working royals. For so many people throughout the world, the concept of a royal family, of a reigning monarchy, is just so yesterday. And when we get a good look at the royals, British or otherwise, and they turn out to be surprisingly unimpressive people, once again, our confidence in all major institutions takes a hit. One could make the case that we're seeing the rise of a new monarchy. In October, we saw a new king of Twitter, Elon Musk. The kingdom of Twitter was at first very excited about their new king, but the initial frenzy began to fade quickly. It remains to be seen how the kingdom of Twitter will fare under the watchful eye of their new ruler. While the king still has plenty of loyal subjects and a fair number of rabid worshipers, there is no question that general confidence in Elon Musk as a leader has taken a hit because of exposure, overexposure, really, a lot of it self-inflicted on social media. It turns out that along with being an engineering genius, co-founder of PayPal, the passionate growth driver of Tesla and SpaceX, because of social media, we also know that as a child, he benefited from a family fortune, primarily a Zambian emerald mine, to be specific. We know that he has a tendency to explode at executives and lower-ranking workers alike, and allegedly fires people who disagree with him. We know that he once called a rescue diver who saved Thai schoolboys a pedo guy, mostly because that gentleman had questioned the viability of an idea that Elon had for the same rescue. We know that Musk was once forced to apologize after a report detailed how outsourced workers for Tesla were paid as little as $5 an hour. We know that he's been accused of manipulating the cryptocurrency market, that his company Neuralink has been accused of extreme animal cruelty. We know that he compared Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to Adolf Hitler. Now, I'll stop at this point, but I could go on and on. The point is not that Elon Musk is a great or horrible person or leader. The point is that in today's world, every bit of potentially dirty laundry gets aired in public. And many leaders, probably feeling invincible or just being clueless because of the bubble they exist in, they air their own dirty laundry in public. And all of this impacts how your people in your organization tend to view their leaders. October of 2022 brought the death of Father Louis Gigante, a Roman Catholic priest, the son of Italian immigrants, and brother of New York mobsters. After he died in October, his will revealed two startling facts. He was a multimillionaire, and he left nearly all of his fortune to a single beneficiary, his 32-year-old son. It turned out that his defiance of one of the tenets of the Catholic Church, that priests must remain celibate, had been an open secret among the Catholic Church hierarchy. His multi-million dollar fortune 
another open secret. Priests have fathered children since the church's earliest days. Indeed, clergymen once had wives and children, but around the 12th century, celibacy became a condition of joining the priesthood in letter, if not always in practice. Today, there are enough priests who have broken celibacy vows and fathered children that there is a global support group for children of priests called Coping International with more than 50,000 members. And Catholic church leaders scratch their heads wondering, where have all the parishioners gone? Why don't they respect us, especially the young people? Why aren't they coming to church? It can't be us. Something must be wrong with them or with society. And so the lesson I take away from this as a leader is to acknowledge how easy when there is an issue to point the finger outward at them. It must be the followers creating the issue. It must be the followers who don't understand. It must be the followers who misperceive And it's so much more challenging to pause with humility and take a look in the opposite direction at ourselves. November 15th of 2022 was highlighted as the day of 8 billion, the day that the world population surpassed 8 billion people, according to the United Nations. China has the highest population with 1.43 billion people and growing. India is second with 1.42 billion people and growing. The United States is a very distant third with 330 million and not growing. If you're a leader of a global business, you really can't afford to ignore the demographic reality of our world today. December of last year brought us the bankruptcy of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX and the arrest of Sam Bankman-Fried. Cryptocurrency had a whirlwind year of ups and downs. Many people who had lost their confidence in our traditional banking and finance institutions had been drawn into the world of blockchain and crypto with the promise of privacy, not being beholden to government fiat currency, strong potential growth, and really cool, smart, socially conscious leaders like Sam Bankman-Fried, who promoted something called effective altruism. Effective altruism is a philosophy that calls on followers to earn as much as they can so they can give as much as possible to charities and causes that benefit the greatest number of people. The 30-year-old Bankman-Fried was once one of the richest people in crypto and had pledged to give 99% of his earnings to charity every year. He had a huge influence on the effective altruism movement, which counts Silicon Valley tech workers and Oxford University academics among its fans. Bankman-Fried previously told Bloomberg he gave away $50 million in 2021. This persona and the lavish praise he received from most large media institutions drew in tens of thousands of people into his FTX exchange. They were lured by the promise of massive investment returns, virtually risk-free because of his unique algorithm. Many of these people were relatively young, relatively inexperienced, not particularly wealthy, and many of them lost it all. And since FTX collapsed, details have emerged suggesting Bankman-Fried led a lavish lifestyle. He's said to have spent thousands of dollars a day on meals for FTX staffers and owned a yacht worth millions of dollars. This is in stark contrast to the image Bankman-Fried crafted. Sleeping on a beanbag, wearing company-branded clothes, driving a Toyota Corolla, and largely shunning personal luxuries. So once again, we experienced a high-profile leader who is revealed to be nothing like the persona pushed forward by the institutional media. And not only are tens of thousands of people hurt financially, but once again, our collective confidence and faith in any leader has taken a hit. 
I hate to end this retrospective on 2022 on a sour note, but there is no question that 2022 was a year of disruption and turmoil for many people, many institutions, many governments, and many businesses. But I do think that throughout all of this, we are, many of us, becoming more resilient. So for 2023, I hope we've learned the lesson of humility and agility, that we have no idea what's coming at us in 2023, and there will probably be two or three or four things that if you and I were to sit here and brainstorm for an hour, they wouldn't even be on our list. But at the same time, our recognition that the complexity and the pace of change in the world is creating huge opportunity for those businesses that embrace change, for those businesses that are committed to trying new things, testing new approaches, staying the course of our strategic investments and vision through the ups and downs of the business cycle, taking full advantage of the incredible array of transformative technologies that are proliferating around us, leveraging the full potential of the incredible people around us. I see that happening in many of the organizations that I work with, with many of the leaders I consult with, even as I record this in early 2023, and that's why I continue to be incredibly optimistic. Okay, that's all for today. In the next episode, we're going to focus on what to expect for future leadership development trends in 2023 and beyond. So whatever podcast you're using to listen to this program, obviously I hope you'll like and share and subscribe to this podcast to be notified when new episodes get posted every Tuesday. And in future shows, I'm going to invite leaders who have practical, real-world advice to share. And of course, I invite your questions and comments, which will also guide the direction of future shows. And with that, thank you for listening to Leadership Disrupted.